I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. We are so excited to have a very special guest and dear friend with us here today, Christopher Emden. Dr. Christopher Emden is the Robert A. Naslin Endowed Chair in Curriculum Theory and Professor of Education at the University of Southern California, where he also serves as Director of Youth Engagement and Community Partnerships at the USC Race and Equity Center. Dr. E is the creator of the Hip Hop Ed social media movement, Science Genius Battles, and the Create Accelerator, and was recently named one of the 27 people bridging divides in the United States by Time Magazine and the Root 100 list of most influential African Americans. Welcome, Chris. Welcome to the show, Chris. So, Chris, I was really curious. What is an idea that's like really compelling for you right now that you're like excited to think about, noodle on? Man, there are a number of things that excite me and that kind of give me that feel in education. Probably the most powerful right now is this concept of biomimicry. And biomimicry is, is an age old practice in the sciences, but essentially is scientists being able to identify ways that things happen naturally in nature and utilize the models from nature to be able to construct new ideas or use as the basis of new principles and concepts. In essence, it says that the answers to our questions already naturally lie within the phenomena in our environment. And rather than think about constructing new things or creating new ideas, let us look more deeply into our context and, and touch into ecology and find the answers of what plagues us within what already exists. And I, I just love that idea scientifically, and I think it has immense application for education. That reminds me of like Adrienne Marie Brown when she, her whole emergent strategy was around looking at nature and seeing how nature adapts so that we can think about how do we bring that into our leadership as we, you know, grow these organizations. It's, it's quite, it's, it's, God, that's so brilliant. Good Lord. The organisms in our, in our, in our world and ecosystems that survive the most are those that have been most nimble. I mean, even a basic concept like adaptive, nimbleness. Right? Yes, nimbles, being nimble and adaptive as a mechanism for not just surviving, but being able to carry legacies from times past into futures is a basic philosophical concept that you can pull from biomimicry that helps us to make sense of what we do in classrooms. Like we become griots through a biomimicry framework for teaching and learning. And it just, it, that concept just excites me. That is so cool. And if you have a piece, like an, an article or something to read around that, we'll put it in the show notes. Cause now I'm all on fire. I'm like, I want to read about this. I need to know right, I'm, I'm gonna send you a little something. I'm gonna send you a little <laughs> we something. We can nerd out together on biomimicry. Yes. <laughs> all right. First of all, I'm just so excited to have you on this podcast. Um, Chris, we go back quite a ways to when I first saw you on stage at the New Teacher Center. I don't yes. know, it might be like seven or eight years ago now. And what I think minute. your first book was either just out or about to come out. And you were talking about the seven C's of reality pedagogy. And I was just blown away. I mean, everything you said landed so deep in my heart. And I knew you were a kindred spirit. And we've built a connection over time. So just really humbled and excited to have you here. And where we wanted to start today was with a little bit of your story. As you know, story is central to street data. It's one of the forms of street data we talked about in the book. 
And storientation, this kind of orientation of leaders and educators to story was something that came up in The Listening Leader. And so we wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about your own experience of schooling mm. and how that experience continues to shape the work you do and the ways you show up in this work. I could not do the academic, intellectual, or even pedagogical work I do today without consistently going back to my own experiences in school. Mm. So, like, the question, like, like, how does it show up? It shows up in all of it. I, I, I mean, everything I write, everything I think about, everything I speak about is rooted in the experiences I had in schools, whether favorable or unfavorable, trying to ensure that what pained me does not pain the next generation, trying to ensure that what broke my spirit does not become baked into our pedagogical practice. And thinking about those few beautiful moments where I felt like I, like I was something um, does not become sparse, fleeting, or accidental as it was for me, but rather something that's deliberate and intentional and consistent for young people. And that, that's what guides my work. You know, my earliest memories of school that were substantive were middle school. You know, the one before that, it was probably all love, right? And not that I don't remember the love, they were important, but the ones where it stuck were middle school and they were, they were not the most positive experiences, right? And, and this is not to say that my teachers were not lovingly beautiful people. I mean, Ms. my favorite teacher till today was Miss Fleming, who was my seventh grade teacher. But with the exception of Miss Fleming, I just didn't fit. I, 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 I didn't fit into the norm. I didn't speak the way people spoke. I didn't act the way people acted. I didn't think the way everyone else thought. And because of that, I was ostracized for being not normal. And I remember that feeling vividly. And I work today to ensure that young folks don't feel like that they're not normal. I mean, in fact, ratchetemic is a response to my middle school experience, right? Because I was maybe a little bit too ratchet to be normalized. <laughs> and so today I want to be ratchetemic in all of who I am, right? And then in high school, you know, I went to this amazing specialized high school. You had to test to get in. I went to Brooklyn Tech. Everybody loves Brooklyn Tech. But Brooklyn Tech also, you know, it was like, the, you know, the black kids at Tech, particularly the ones who came from uptown, you know, they were supposed to be thugs and gangsters. And they were supposed to, like, been lucky to get into this school. And we were just as smart as everybody else. But because we were supposed to be things, and that was the message we received, we decided that we were going to give them what they said we were. Mm -mm. Think about that. We were going to give schools what they decided that we were. We were going to act like something other than who we are for the sake of making them comfortable. Even if who we were pretending to be was not who we authentically were, and even if who we were pretending to be was detrimental to our fullness and our wholeness, right? So I had to perform thug for three years. And I ain't no thug. I'm a science geek. You know what I mean? I got a little hood swag in me, but I ain't no thug. Like, I'm a science geek with a little swag. You know what I mean? I'm a thoughtful individual who loves the art of rhyme. You know, I love decoding things. I love making connections, which is why I love hip-hop, because hip-hop is all about decoding and making connections. But somebody convinced me that the things that I am were not who I was, and I spent an entire adolescence becoming something other than who I was designed to be. And again, I do my work today to ensure that young folks don't have that experience, to understand that you don't have to make choices about who you are. You could be cool and smart. You could be nerdy and hip-hoppy. You could, you know what I mean? And, and that you can choose to be any variation of those things on different days of the week. 
because we're not a monolith. So the short answer to a long and, and thoughtful question, dear sister, is that I am consistently informed by my experiences and they are the battery that drives my work. And then I'm also informed by my experiences as a teacher, my work as a researcher, but the root of it is my experiences in school. It's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing those, um, what we've been calling one inch windows into your schooling experience, right? The middle school and the high school. And, and knowing that the roots of Ratchedemic is your middle school experience, that makes a lot of sense. It helps me, it actually clicks me into a deeper level of meaning around the text. So thank you for that. Great. So an early provocation in street data is that what is measurable is not the same as what is valuable. So we are asking you, what kind of data in your mind should be valued and centered if we're going to be about equity and anti-racism? Data is such a, like the word itself invokes in the imagination of the, of the hearer that it needs to be touched. And, you know, and, and y'all know this, Shane know this, you know, data is seen, data is felt, Yes. Data's experienced. Yes, yes. And, and so there's data in dance, there's data in walks, there's data in eyebrow raises and, um, and, and, and choices of what you wear. And, and, and I just want us to get to a point in society where we learn to be able to read the unreadable, right? Like the, the non-textual and to be sophisticated enough in our work where we're not so rudimentary that all we care about is numbers. Like, you know, here's the thing that's ill about it, right? The ill thing about it is the thing that we hold in highest esteem as a measure of a thing is actually the thing that's most superficial and furthest away from the depth of the knowledge. Like, it's so weird. So it's like, it's a mind trip. You're like, you hear the number and you're like, yo, but that don't tell me. Enough. And this is this is industry data, I know, because I read the book so well and I swim in that beautiful masterpiece that was put together. You know what I mean? Like, but it's like, yo, fam, like, yo, I... You can tell more about me by the cock of my hat. The way my hat is tilted tells you where I come from, what traditions I'm birthed in, what neighborhood I grew up in, you know, and 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 if you're sophisticated enough and you're informative enough about the, the urban environment that I've found myself embedded in, I pull from my aesthetic more from where I come from than any measurable data does about my experience. And, and so, you know, I, that that's that's just the vibe I'm on. <laughs> I also, you know, and I so I keep talking about Ratchedemic. By the way, Ratchedemic is my favorite thing I've ever written. I was talking to a bunch of grad students today, and they were like, what's your favorite book ever written? Or what's your favorite article ever? I'm like, Ratchedemic, like my whole soul in that joint. I put my whole foot and soul in that joint. But in Ratchedemic, I consistently make these nods to uh, spirituality and nods to the unseen. to the things that occupy our spaces that we can't touch, but that we know we inherit. And I think that that's the piece of the work that folks don't miss. Like really dope classrooms, they just feel right. The question becomes, why do they feel right? They feel right because the educators in those classrooms have done the self work and the work in the space to clear out all them evil spirits that occupy it. Ooh. I don't know if y'all want to hear that spirit talk this Ooh. morning. I, I might take y'all to church for a little Pentecostal pedagogy. If you, if you want a good word this morning, you might get one. Sometimes there are things that occupy the space that are unseen. You know, scripturally, they talk about them as principalities and rulers of the darkness of the world. What I'm saying is that all the bad 
words said about a community that occupied a space that have gone on said stay in there and if you breathe those things in deep enough they become so toxic that they taint your vision of the possibilities of doing something for young folks in their lives and you have to be able to take stock check of that data the data that is unseen that is in the air and the reason why certain classes feel good is because somebody's done the work to clear the space that's right. And some classes yes, feel bad because somebody has not addressed what's in that space. And no matter how good they think they are, no matter where their graduate school of education is, no matter what their background is, they think that they are equipped to do the work. But you ain't cleared the space yet, beloved. And if you ain't cleared the space yet, you're going to inherit somebody else's trauma and wonder why the kids ain't learning from you. And it's so funny. So how I know Shane is Shane knew me a little bit when I was a teacher, but she was my leadership coach. I was a new leader running this building, this school in, in Oakland. And I'd come from the South Bronx. And we were just saying yesterday when we were asking this question about what kinds of data should people pay attention to. And I was saying, I used to, as soon as my babies walk through the building, I'm looking, I'm watching them. Mm. I can tell by the way they did their hair. I can tell by the way their body is, who I need to go up to and hug and just be like, come here, don't say nothing because mm. something is wrong. And I was saying how I inherited this classroom that had seven teachers, the kids had ran out seven teachers when I started teaching high school in South Bronx, 22. The first thing I did when I heard that, I got the biggest, now this is going to sound, you know, culturally inappropriate now, now I would not buy my sage from, you know, all these places, but I was saging that classroom every Friday it's and real. every Monday. Listen, yeah. I, I talk about that. I talk about burning the pedagogical sage and they, they be looking at me yes. like I'm tripping. I ain't tripping. You tripping because you don't see it. Listen, I used to, that's data. More in the church, right? Like I used to have blessed oil. I would just look at a kid and say, go grab the oil because I'm mm -hmm. not dealing with you today. They're like, mm -hmm. can we listen to gospel music? Because I'm not really, yes, and turn it down on low because I'm not trying to lose my job. But mm -hmm. if that's what y'all need to write, we're going to do some good writing and it's going to be whatever music is going to. Sometimes it was jazz. Sometimes it was hip hop. But music. You are so spot on. And if we keep going down this rabbit hole, we will be here till four. And I know y'all ain't got the time and I ain't got the time. But hip hop music. Why I'm such a like why I'm such a hip hop educator, why I'm so committed to it is because the boom bap that is the fundamental piece of any hip hop song that boom. Bap, boom, boom. It's a heartbeat. It's a heartbeat of a of a culture that's not a monolith, but that exists. And so the boom bap, which is the heartbeat, it gives forth life. When you play a boom bap in the classroom, you awaken the life of the young people. Now, people say, well, I, you know, back then when we talk about, you know, I'm teaching their mind. Well, you haven't activated the soul. If you want to activate the soul, you need to be able to activate the heartbeat. That means that you need to be able to activate the boom bap. Well, I don't like the words. Don't like the words. You just give me a boom bap and a bass line. And I can stir up a soul. And when the soul's stirred up, I can open up the mind. And once the mind's open up, I can give you some instruction in any content area. And, and the world is not yet caught up to the necessary no. data that's necessary for us to be able to get this work done. And if there's any order of operations in this pedagogical enterprise, it's what you just laid out. It doesn't mm. start up here, right? That's not where it starts. Right. We, if we're not calling in the hearts and spirits of the babies, they, they're just they're not interested. Awesome. Um, and this last riff on data, Chris, uh, just it was so beautiful. And it reminded me of that first time I heard you speak when you were talking about I'll never forget this. I don't know if I'm going to say it right, but you, you basically were talking about how culture changes from block to block. It's not just a, a community or a neighborhood. It's like shifts from block to block. And then you were talking about this artifact piece, which showed up in your first book and shows up in street data and how you would have kids on their way to school look for an artifact, whether that was a rock or whatever, right? That signifies your lived experience, your embodied experience of moving through your community. And that just 
I just love that. And I love how, you know, this conversation about data, it's about so much more nuance and richness than anything these quote unquote measurables and dashboards and spreadsheets can tell us about any human experience. So thank you for bringing that. Nah, talk your talk, Shane. You spot on, beloved. You talk your talk. <laughs> talk your talk. So, kind of building off that, you know, a little earlier you shared that when you were a child in middle school, you didn't fit into the norm and you felt ostracized for being quote unquote not normal. And we know so many babies feel that way, right? And internalize that sense of shame or marginalization. And so one of the things we want to ask you is what are some ways of knowing and being that you would like to see elevated and affirmed in the classroom? And on the flip side, what does it look like when educators kind of dishonor children's ways of knowing? Well, I'll start with the latter. If you do not honor who you have in front of you, they will not learn from you. Period. Now, not even period. Let me add a T on that. Period. You know, if, if there's no mechanism for you to show to young folks that you see the fullness of who they are, they will refuse to learn from you. And and people say, well, Dr. Henry, what do you mean by that? The kids do still learn. They're not learning. You know, they, 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 might, they might memorize what you offer. They may soak in enough of it to give it back to you at some point. They may perform attentiveness. Mm -hmm. there's, late, there's levels to this, fam. Like, they, they, they might do things that data might indicate as learning that is not learning. Right. The actual learning sticks to your ribs like soul food. I ask you if five years from now, you still remember the moment. You know, I ask you that. I ask 20 years from now, you can still tell me the story that the teacher told you about balancing equation and you can utilize the, that to balance your checkbook now, right? That's learning. The other stuff is this, is, is this thin slice, thin slice, the isotopes of learning. And let me get my chemistry bag real quick. You know, in chemistry, you can, have a, you can have a chemical compound and the isotopes are slight variations of the original that may look like it has the same chemical composition of the original, but in reality are variations of the original that don't have the same kind of value, the same kind of impact, the same kind of purpose, the same kind of utility as the original. Sometimes we look at isotopes of learning as though they are learning itself. And, and you know that the isotopes ain't the real thing because once you engage in a chemical formula, it, it, it withers away. The real thing sticks forever. So, so, so I think honoring students allow us to be able to see past the isotopes to the authentic chemical formula that is, in, that is authentic engagement. And honoring looks like I see you. I see the variations of you. I see the complexities of you. I see your ancestors who flow through you. When I look into your eyes, I not only see your present, I see your future. When I look into your eyes, I see the future and your past are a continuum. When I look into your eyes, I, I see the, the fullness and wholeness of not just your potential, but of, but, but of all that you've gone through before you hit my presence that inhibited you from being able to reach your potential. I look into your eyes to clear space to allow you to bring your full self forth. I see genius in you before you utter any words from your mouth. I see the potential in your humanity by virtue of the ways that you walk into a room. When your shoulders are down, I want to speak words to you and the things that bog you down to make your shoulders lift up and make your eyes wide and open to learn. Honoring is all those complexities. And, you know, the reason the, folks are try to render the essence of the work superficial because they lack the humanity and they lack the capacity to see humanity. And we've got to be unapologetic about naming folks who operate on the superficial, who will who will name what we do as outside of bounds and say, nah, I'm not out of bounds. You ain't even in bounds. You know what I'm saying? I feel so sorry for the generations that will come after you. Look at, look at how you betrayed the legacy of your children's children because you come into the world with an opportunity to affect change. They have no idea how they've set forth for their children's children to inherit the 
idiocy of what they presented. Like, you know, I feel bad for what you're doing right now, but I want you to stop for a minute and think about how your grandchildren will have to inherit the lies you're telling in the present. And conversely, if you're in a classroom, that's the beautiful part. How magical and beautiful would it be when your children's children say that my grandma, my grandpa set souls on fire and I come from a tradition of folks who've always done that work. You know, I, I always close my talks with this one line, you are somebody's ancestor, teach like it, so that those who come after you will have something to be proud of. chills just i don't even there's like nothing to say to that i say, okay but i am gonna say you've given me a lot of science homework so now i'm gonna go read about biomimicry and isotopes of learning and authentic compounds <laughs> i'm excited to be geek out on science in the next couple weeks i love it i love it love it you said so much there so much brilliance and also the power of your words and i was really struck in your forward i will just say this you shifted something dramatic for me in the way you were talking about street data. That was a concept I've heard, you know, I've heard Shane, you know, dabble with because we've worked together for a while, even before the book came out. But when you talked about how the honoring of the street, right, like all the ways the street comes in. And I remember when we were teaching in the South Bronx, we were in the South Bronx, right, where it was like the UN of gangs we had, and it was like, all these things that were coming in with the kiddos. And I remember we would be like, oh, we got to figure out how to like keep the street out there, meaning the harmful things, right? And, and that's a real thing. I had kids in real harm. And how do you make school so enticing that they rush to the building at 7 a.m. before anything yeah. pops off, right? Like you got you to gotta figure out and how do you keep them there until six when the doors are closing, right? Like that's a real thing in some communities. But when you talked about the honoring of it, it really flipped it on my head. And I just thank you for that. There's such magic in restitution. And we don't use words like atonement and restitution in teaching and learning. And they're essential for us to get anywhere. And you have to. If yeah. you are aware of your impact as a teacher, there's not any day that I would never have apologized to my kids. I had to. Like, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. That mini lesson was trash. I'm going to mm -hmm. do better tomorrow. <laughs> As a first-year teacher, as a second-year teacher, you don't know what you're doing. You're trash. Acknowledge it and learn from the babies. And then we can move yes. on. But this is this is my real question, right? Like, what do you see as the intersection of your brilliant body of, of brilliant work, right? Especially with uh, Ratchetemic and the content or the ideas and street data. Like, where's that intersection in those two things? They sit together so pretty, man. You know what I mean? Those are bosom buddies. Them joints, them joints is allies and friends. They they they're in conversation with each other right now outside of us having a conversation with each other. And the reason why is because a, a seemingly esoteric philosophical concept like being ratchetemic rests at esoteric and hyper-philosophical without a conceptual understanding like street data to articulate it in ways that have impact in classrooms, in schools, and districts. I, I think it's important for those two ideas and concepts to be married to each other so that folks don't perceive them in isolation as useless, right? Yes. So, you know, like street data, what do you mean by the street data? You know, I don't get it. Man, read Ratchetemic. Because if you read Ratchetemic, you'll understand what we're trying to measure. Oh, I read Ratchetemic, but how are we going to be able to convince a, 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 a district that it... Well, read street data. They're in consistent conversation for us to have a, a, a really beautiful and robust picture of the way forward. And, you know, another interesting thing, just based on what you said, sister, is, you know, the people are good. The streets are good. When you see harm and hurt and violence coming from good, it's a response to evils larger than the street. We oftentimes like, oh, there are gangs in the bad neighborhood. Why are there gangs? Nobody asks the question why there's socioeconomic divestment. 
right? Nobody has to, why are the kids acting this way? Why are they so, like, angry all the time? Nobody had a conversation about food deserts and the absence of nutrients in young folks and that how that affects their psychology and their being and their mood. So we, we look at symptoms without looking at causes, and, and then we blame the folks who are responding to systemic violence for their expressions of a responsiveness to the larger systemic political social political structure that harms them rather than start saying yo if if i'm seeing violence in good people right i'm seeing anger in people who have soul what's going on that's causing that to be manifested in good people and then you start addressing what the real problems are <laughs> you know what i mean i i love that you just gave people about three years worth of a pd arc right there like <laughs> That's love. That's love. I love it. I'm going to pick up that thread around the intersection. And and first of all, I'll just say that when Jamila and I got your forward, I was just blown away. I mean, it is such a beautiful piece of writing and it captures the spirit of what my deepest hopes were for this book in a way that just really moved me. So thank you again for being a partner and a friend in this work. And so I want to read an excerpt of your your forward, the very last kind of half the last paragraph, and then just ask you if you could comment on it and unpack it a little bit for us. So this is where you write, um, street data is about embeddedness, sitting in and with people and places until one shifts both philosophy and methodology. It is the pursuit of liberation in both theory and practice by recognizing that if the body and soul are colonized by institutional norms, it is impossible for the mind to function at its highest level. Most importantly, it's about operating with the belief in the infinite potential of those who have been told they are less than and radical honesty about the deep flaws in the system as it currently stands. So I will pause there and just ask you to kind of unpack those those ideas and, and maybe kind of comment on this idea of truth telling amidst this divisive political climate we are sitting in across the states. What does it mean to really embrace this call to action you wrote in the foreword? Sometimes when I hear pieces of the or to work back, I realized that um, my fingers were dancing on the keyboard, but the ancestors were downloading. And, and, and just hearing that sentence back, I know that wasn't me. Maybe I wrote some of it, but I ain't write that part. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, I, I think in the, in the current climate where we are all forced to pick this or that, and I, and I go through this all the time in my professional lives, right? Like, you know, people, like, they're trying to catch you out there. Look, Dr. Emden, are you, are you this? Are you, are you, you know, are you charter or public? Are you, you know, are you quantitative data? Or qu like, they, they, just, people just construct these binaries that are social constructs and utilize manufactured, like man manufactured, like manufactured. And, and when I say manufactured, I'm also being very intentional about the, the gendering of this, right? You know, a, as a black man and as a man in a world where sociopolitically there's been a collective demeaning of the voice of sisters and how we, where they, where on, from the highest seat of the land, the denial of rights of women to make decisions on their own bodies, right? I have to, I have to also be able to say that it's a manufactured, right, patriarchal view of how we exist. You need a radical departure from it. I was talking to a group of arts educators this morning, and we were, we were quoting Maxine Green, who was one of my heroes, and I, I, I used to sit in Maxine Green's apartment. And, and literally, I would sit on the floor, and she would sit on a chair, and I'd just hear her think out loud. Probably one of the most influential things for my construction of an identity as a scholar. And I, I used to remember sitting at Maxine's feet, hearing her speak about the ways that she was locked into a way of thinking, and how she started advocating for this concept of presentness. 
And what came to me as I spoke to these educators this morning was everybody is so persistent in their pursuit of being present that they're not intentional about what they're going to be absent from. You, you can't be fully present unless you're intentional about being absent from social political norms. You can't be mindful if you're not aware of the fact that your mind is full of convention. It's always ensuring that you're intentional about what you choose to be and not being locked into binaries that manufactured your way of being. If you're not, look, if you're not clear, you will use the language of equity and social justice and, and, and radical possibilities to, you use the language of revolution to ensure oppression. And that's the most Ooh. sick and sinister part. Ooh, when the words so good. are freedom work, but the practice is binding the heart and the soul and incarcerating it. So be intentional about what you're present for and then also be deliberate about what you're going to be absent from. Be mindful as you engage with young people, but try not to have your mind full of convention as you engage in that practice. It's always consistently and both. It's never either or. It's so good. I mean, this piece around epistemology and binary ways of thinking is foundational to the book, right? And runs us right into the kind of satellite data complex that is incarcerated, continues to incarcerate our imaginations. And I appreciate you calling that out and speaking to that. I think one follow-up on this that we were talking about is, is the question of how to bring these ideas to life with what is still a predominantly white teaching force that is not only often invested in maintaining the status quo, right? But also I would argue as a white person who's continues to do a lot of somatic work and work around unlearning, like conditioned to be disconnected connected from our bodies and our ancestry. The only way to interrupt conditioning is to be deliberate about countering it. Like, sometimes we don't have to be too sophisticated. Yo, we are locked into a system that's jacked up, that's doing violence on the lives of young people. We know how to do better. And the question always becomes like, what do we do to do better? Do better. And and then, do and, then, and then, Dr. Emden, how do you do better? Do better in community with other folks who are doing better. L listen, you know why I'm on this podcast with you today? Because we riding for the same mission, beloved. Like, maybe if I do this podcast, somebody who likes my work will then tap into your work, and somebody who likes your work may then tap into my work, then that person gets both lenses, and we might reference somebody else, and now they go into their classroom, and now we operate in community. Hip-hop ed, hashtag hip-hop ed. Every single Tuesday night, 8.15 Eastern, 5.15 Pacific. I ain't got to do hip-hop ed. I be tired on a Tuesday. I ain't miss a Tuesday in a decade, beloved. Why? Because you personal sacrifice in community is the pathway to freedom. So how do we do this work in the midst of a work that conditions us? We do the work. And we don't do the work in isolation. We do the work in community. We don't do the work in competition. Yes. Let me say that one again. That one is yes. hard for people. Yes. Ooh, that one's hard. Well, what if they just listen to them and not me? Do you, Are you in it for you or are you in it for the work, right? Abundance. And you claim abundance by giving this yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, we got to do a part two, mm -hmm. three, and four. If you have a mindset yeah. that this is for us to get towards freedom and there's no scarcity, there's no decision, there's no one or the other, because we all operate in a fullness and wholeness and bring an element to this that somebody else ain't got and somebody got an element to it that you ain't got and together we move towards freedom. That's how we win. The only time, that, the reason why this work don't do what it's supposed to do is because we are utilizing a, a Eurocentric patriarchal tradition to try to articulate freedom work. They don't work together. They don't mesh. And, and, and it's our fault that we stuck. Because we're using revolutionary language with, with, with a carceral framework. That shit don't work. Double, triple tap on that. That's, that's it. So I'm going to go quick to this one. But you just, you just talked about a whole bunch of stuff that I think flows into this question, which is, what is your next generation vision 
for education, or another way to say this is what is your radical dream for the next generation of education? Ooh, that's a big question. I, I, first of all, I have a lot of answers, though. I don't know if five minutes are going to do it. I, 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 I just dream of spaces where young folks are free to be themselves and learn. I dream of classrooms where interdisciplinarity is the norm and we don't say the science kid, the math kid, the English kid, the social studies kid, the art kid. I dream of spaces where teachers are open to learn from students and students are open to learn from teachers and that notion that one person has knowledge and one has one does not is completely eradicated. I dream of places of rigor. And people oftentimes don't perceive this work as rigorous, but I want young folks to be asking graduate school level questions in the fourth grade and, and, and the notion that this heart work and love work is absent from, you know, intellectual and academic rigor is such a stupid idea. So I, I dream of places of love and rigor in close relationship with each other. One of my newest projects, I'm partnering up with Lincoln Center uh, for the Performing Arts, and I'm a scholar in residence over there. And we're doing a project called the Post-Pandemic Classroom. And we're literally, we, we, literally, we literally built a model classroom based on conversations with young people about what their ideal classroom would look like. So mm -hmm. I dream of worlds where our vision for a post-pandemic classroom is offered and possible to all young people across the globe. I, I, I dream of hybridity, intersections. I, I dream in the color of Ratchademic. Love it, love it, love it. We're gonna close with a lightning round and we'll go back and forth. First one, you are called to listen deeply to someone, but what they have to say is triggering. What's the first thing you do? Tell them I am triggered by what you said. We play too much, we over-intellectualize it. I I've reached a point in my life, I know it's 30 second joints, I've reached a point in my life, if you harm me, you gonna know. So you can't, so that if you do it again, you can't claim ignorance. And so if you pain to me and you harming me, you triggering me, you gonna know. Next time when you do it, then I know it's intentional and it's deliberate. And then for you, it's a sin. Well, I also like the J. Cole approach. Fool me once, shame on you. Listen. Fool me twice. Can't put the blame on you. What happens three times, Chris? Fool no, me three times, throw the oh. peace sign, right? Get yeah. that right, and let it blaze on you. You heard? Facts. There's that. So what is a practice or a way of being that keeps you grounded in the face of resistance and oppression? Uh, meditation and affirmation. I talk to myself more than I talk to anybody else. I'm with that. Trying to do that every morning. Beautiful. What is one form of street data that you believe every educator should gather? Reading the body. If your shoulders are down, it means you're carrying something. If your eyes are low, you've gone through something. If your mouth is twisted, you have a question. If your eyebrow raises, you want more. If your fingertips are going, you're excited. You tap your feet, it's nervous energy. Th 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 reading the body. It's a whole nonverbal literacy, right? And we should be teaching teachers how to read it. This is a whole essence of teaching. There's no class on reading the body. And I'd be like, yo, how, son? How are you a school of education and you ain't taught these folks how to use their body and read a body? Because it would mean that you would have to relocate, hmm. reunify your own self, right? And goes back to that question of how do you do this work and how do you be this work? And that's hard. You got to sift through your own stuff and figure out why is your face curled up while you're trying to teach somebody's baby, right? But that's a different story. So what's the type of data that you feel is overused? I mean, you know, these... Stupid ass graphs. I'm sorry to use that language. I mean, you know, like it's just, it's just, you know, here's a bar graph to show you the, and then the, the scale is, and as a, as a STEM person also, I'd be so pissed off, like not even about the manipulation of the numbers, but
but also like the mathematical inaccuracy of the approach to doing it. Like, you know, it's like, like yeah, you're fair. not only are you lying in your data, you're also lying in how you're using the data and you ain't using the data right. Like, you know, just because I'm a, I'm a, a reacher that, that sees the power and the beauty in storytelling and a more embedded approach does not mean I don't understand numbers. I just understand the limitations of numbers. And so when they do one these trash bar graphs, I, I end up like, yo, mathematically is incorrect. And you lying. And it's inaccurate and it's manipulative. I just have no time for it. All right, last two. What's one essential feature for you of your radical vision of a learning environment? Be that a classroom or however you want to define it. Yeah, a post-pandemic collider classroom is it. Like we've built it. We've literally built it, y'all. New York City is allowing us, to, if they don't pull the funding, we built one. We built a model. We built one in a school in Brooklyn. We started gutting a school in a classroom in the Bronx and a building one there. And they told us that they're going to give us a space to build five more. And the classroom has to, first of all, physical spaces cannot be the way they look. You need a wall and screen of data and data meaning like windows into the world that's digital these are digital babies we can't erase that so you need a digital wall you need green space you need different kinds of lighting you need sound you need smell that brings them back so it, the, the classroom has to be a, a place that activates all the senses and if we don't activate the senses then we've not created an, uh, an environment that allows you to tap into the optimal you know like the optimal frequency of learning for young folks so post-pandemic and collider classrooms are the answer uh at least for creating a physical environment that lends itself to allowing young folks to to be awakened in, in the Maxine Green-esque way, like to, to, to be wide awake enough to receive content knowledge. Beautiful. Ooh. And then finally, a great learning experience will, and that's kind of the impact, right? A great learning experience will make you want to dance. It makes you want you, you you know what I mean? You know, when it feels so good, your body can't do anything but respond, you know what I'm saying? That That's what a good learning experience will make you want to do, for sure. Make you want to do a oh dance, Oh, my baby. God. Mm -hmm. That's going to make me cry. That is so Love true. The times I knew I was teaching right because the kids would be like, oh, yep. oh, oh. Okay. and then you get the dancing, too. That's the indicator. Yeah, you got the mirror neurons oh. popping in the room. Let's Everybody talk your science movie. talk, Shane. The mirror neurons <laughs> is popping. <laughs> Oh my so God. amazing. This is so fun. This has been too much joy for one hour. I'm so, my heart is so full, Chris. Thank you for coming on and gracing us with your time. It's precious. Thank you, babies, for, yes. you know, allowing me to stay with us. No. No, um, I'm so, so thrilled to remember that you're on the West Coast. So hopefully we can connect in person one yes. of these days because I'm right up here in Oakland. So if you come up, please let me know. Let's and get it. Just oh, you're, you. you're adding to, to oh, uh, some of my favorite people in the world are already in Oakland. So now you're adding to that list. So I'm the place. Yeah, we're gonna hit Oakland up. <laughs> can I can I say in closing to, to both of you how deeply appreciative I am that you invited me into your space, how honored I am to be in fellowship with you, how excited I am for the possibilities when we continue to work in unison to transform lives for our children. Um, and, and with that, I'm out. <laughs> Peace, y'all. <laughs> for collective freedom. Thank you, Chris Emden, for being on the show. You can get a copy of his book, Ratchetdemic, at Beacon Press, or follow him on Twitter at Chris Emden. Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Maya Cueva. Our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. And special shout out to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring. If you want to learn more about Street Data, and get your hands on a copy of the book, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe. 
and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. Next week on Street Data Pod. Kids know best what they need to learn next, but we just choose not to listen to them. All right. Um, Ready? Sorry, as I wait for the garbage truck to go by. (laughs) Ah! Okay.